1 Thessalonians chapter number 4 and beginning in verse 13. Paul, of course, is writing and he says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. I thought about title in this message, Ignorance is not bliss. And it's not. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray our Father. We are blessed to have your word, the word of God, the perfect word of Almighty God. Freely, each one of us can have our own copy, bring it to church, out in the public, freely. We can read it daily, we can absorb it, we can meditate on it, and we know that this book is not like any other book, it's a living book, it's the very word of God. And, and today we pray, Lord, that you would open our minds to the truth, that you would open our hearts to the truth, Lord, that you would help us not to be distracted with things that often distract us, but rather to keep our focus on what you would have to say to us today. Help me, Lord, to speak clearly and not to get in the way of anything that you have to say to people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We're not going to cover all of these verses this morning, but we will get a start. The church in Thessalonica to whom Paul was writing was a good church. It was a great church. It was a young church. Not young physically, but spiritually young. They were just babes. They were new Christians. And Paul, along with Timothy and Titus, had spent just a short time there preaching to them. And while they were there, these people grew spiritually. And after they left, they continued to grow their love grew, their good works, their faith grew. It was, they had a reputation across the entire region for their faith. These people did. They were a good church. They were a generous church, but they weren't the perfect church. Earlier in this chapter, chapter 4, we learned that there were some busybodies in the church, people who weren't very good at minding their own business, and Paul had to address that. There were some people who didn't want to work. Paul actually had to say to them, write to them, say to them while he was with them, that if a man would not work, he shouldn't eat. So it wasn't the perfect church. They also had a misunderstanding or a lack of information, perhaps, about what happens to Christians who die. And that's what he's addressing in the passage that we just read together, what happens to Christians who die. The Thessalonians came from a culture where the idea of a bodily resurrection was foreign to them. They did not believe in an afterlife as, as we would believe in it. 
it's evident shortly after. After Paul left Thessalonica, he went to Berea. And after he went to Berea, he went to Athens. And while he was in Athens preaching like he always did, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel in essence, while he preached there, the people in Athens mocked him. They called him a babbler. And they said, what will this babbler say next? And the reason they called him that was because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. They didn't believe the in a resurrection of Jesus or of Christians. So while the people in Thessalonica were solid on many things, they had some theological shortcomings, some gaps in their doctrine, some things that needed to be addressed by Paul in his writing. They were really struggling about this matter of death, fearing what would happen, what had happened to those who had died since he left. They had questions. We all deal with death. Some of you have uh, faced death with a loved one, more recently than others have, but every one of us is touched, has been touched by death of someone that we care about, someone that we love. And, and death comes with questions. Lots of questions. They had questions. They had questions like, what happens to them? What happens to the people who die before Jesus returns? Are they just in the ground waiting there? Are they in some kind of a waiting period, waiting for someone to come and take them? Are they stuck? Are these people okay? Where are they? They had questions, and Paul is going to address it. And our times of loss, we have questions, don't we? Even as believers, when we lose someone, we have questions. Paul gives some answers to those who are sorrowing. He wants to bring comfort to them. And I want to note first that it's not sinful to sorrow. Ecclesiastes says this, there's a time to weep. And a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. It's not sinful to sorrow. Sorrowing is okay. Paul didn't condemn them for grieving. He didn't say, you're a Christian. How can you be sad? Don't you know that Jesus died for your sins? Don't you know? Look at all he's done for you. How can you possibly be sad? He didn't condemn them for grieving. We're going to come back shortly to what actually Paul did say about that. But it's not sinful to sorrow. But what Paul was trying to do is keep them from sorrowing in the same way that unbelievers sorrowed. Verse 13, again, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. So what would keep these people, these Christians, from sorrowing like the people who have no hope? And very simply, it's knowing the truth of God. It's not being ignorant. That's what he's going to teach them. This was a common phrase for Paul, not to be ignorant. When I was a child, that was kind of a derogatory term. People said, you're ignorant. I don't hear that too often anymore, but that's not the way Paul was. He, he was trying to be helpful to them. In Romans, he said this, Romans eleven twenty five. for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant. First Corinthians 10, 1, moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant. 1 Corinthians 12, 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Romans 1, 13, now I would not have you ignorant, brethren. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, for we would not, brethren, have you ignorant. Philippians 1, 12, he said it like this, but I would, ye should understand. Same thing, he's saying the same thing. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 says, but I would have you know I want you to know some things. We could list even more, but this was important to Paul, that they would understand. To be ignorant is to be uninformed. 
to, to misunderstand something. Let's be reminded of who Paul was speaking to. This was a group of Christians in the city of Thessalonica. More specifically, it was a church. More specifically, it was the church that Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, had, had founded, had planted, and had spent weeks there at least preaching the gospel to them. Do we, do we know of any greater preacher and teacher than the apostle Paul? And if these people who sat under Paul's teaching and under Timothy's teaching and under Silas's teaching could have theological shortcomings, would you agree that it's not out of the realm of possibility that there could be doctrines that we are uninformed or misinformed about? It's very possible for believers, even disciples of Jesus Christ, to be ignorant about what God has said, to misunderstand or misapply what he has said. And the heart of a pastor says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant about the things that God has said. Paul is not okay with leaving them in ignorance. Ignorance is not bliss. He's not okay with saying, well, that's fine. You don't get it. Let's move on to the next thing. Paul over and over again said, I would not have you ignorant. I would that you would understand. I want you to know. I would not have you ignorant about this doctrine, about this truth. Ignorance specifically to God's word, creates apprehension, anxiety. We're going to see that today. And a pastor's heart desires to impart biblical knowledge to people and biblical understanding to the people that he shepherds. It's not that these people had no information. Look just a few pages to the right to chapter 5, verse 1. But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Paul had spent some time there preaching on the coming of Christ. They understood a little bit about end times, but there was still a lack of understanding. And their lack of understanding, their ignorance, led to grief, it led to sorrow, and it led to anxiety on their part. So he doesn't want them to be uninformed. And he gives them the reason here. It's not so that they can win a Bible quiz or so they can flaunt to their neighbors about how much Bible they know. It's not about that. So why is he so concerned about their biblical understanding? And he tells them in verse 13 that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. We see the the love here of a shepherd shining through. I want you to understand because I don't want you to live in sorrow. The people we care about, we care if they sorrow. Have you ever looked at somebody that you loved? And you looked at them and you could tell that there was something bothering them. You could tell there was something wrong. They were down about something. They were discouraged about something. They were depressed about something. And you looked at them and you said, what's wrong? And what do they usually say? Nothing. Anyone experienced that? No? If the person, if you've experienced that with the person beside you, just give them a quick elbow because I, I want to see. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. It's happened to all of us. You see somebody who's upset about something, and you, and you say, what's wrong? Because you care about them, and you want them to be happy, and you say, what's wrong? And they say, oh, nothing. And maybe you guys are better than I am. I'm sure that you are, but I'm not very good at being okay with that. I'm not, I'm not very good at just saying, okay, you're good? Okay, cool. Let's, just, let's go on with our day then. No, because we care about them, and we want, to, we want to help. We want to fix. We're fixers. And we say, what's wrong? No, tell me. Something's wrong. What's wrong? Tell me what's wrong. There's something wrong. Paul loved these people, and because he loved them, he did not want to see them sorrowful, and he knew the cure to their sorrow. See, ignorance leads to hopelessness, and hopelessness leads to sorrow, and that's what we see here. 
That's why we sorrow, especially for those who die without Christ. Paul's not criticizing or condemning them for having sorrow, but what he's saying is that the type of sorrow that they have can be avoided with a a proper understanding of biblical truth. And the specific biblical truth that he's talking about here is what happens after a person dies, and specifically after a Christian dies. Every human faces death. In our own, our own lives come to an end. Those that we love, everyone faces it. In verse 3, he uses the term sleep. In fact, three times in the next three verses, he's going to use the word sleep in referring to death. Verse 13, he says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. That you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. The word sleep is a uniquely Christian way to speak about death. It was very intentional because for the Christian, death is not permanent. We see many occurrences of this word speaking about death in the scriptures. A couple of weeks ago, we, we, we studied Mark chapter 5 here on Sunday morning. And there was this young girl who everybody knew had died. Jesus was supposed to come help her, but he, he was late and she had already passed away. And Jesus visited her home and everybody's mourning around. And Jesus said, why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel's not dead, but sleepeth. The people mocked and they laughed at Jesus. But he knew something they didn't know that she was going to live again. Her death was just temporary. In John chapter 11, Jesus gets the news that a friend of his, a dear friend of his, Lazarus, is very sick. Lazarus is sick unto death. He was supposed to come heal him. Jesus said this, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of his sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. If he's sick... Rest is good for him. This is what he needs is rest. They didn't understand his terminology. They knew he was ill, so they thought sleep was good for him. But Jesus was going to clarify to him. He said, how be it? Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But we know that Lazarus was not going to be dead very long. He was, it was temporary, just asleep. Now, we need to be clear that the sleeping in First Thessalonians is not speaking of some kind of a soul sleep where the soul, the spirit, just goes to sleep and awaits for a while to be called out, waiting to be rescued. The spirit never sleeps. The spirit never dies. It's the body that's sleeping. Would you turn to Acts chapter 7? I want to show you this. Acts chapter 7. This chapter records the first martyr a godly man named Stephen, murdered for preaching the gospel, murdered for preaching the truth. By the time we get to verse 60, Stephen is just about dead. He's been surrounded by a group of angry men with large rocks in their hands who have gnashed on him with their their teeth and thrown these rocks so hard at him with such impact, such force, that he is about to die. He's bloodied. His bones are broken. Verse 60, he kneeled down, Stephen did, and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. At that moment... Humanly speaking, he was 
dead. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 2, they carried his lifeless body to be buried. But we're given some insight in verse 59, a very important detail. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen understood that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We're given a definition of death in James 2.26. He says the body without dead. So when a person dies, the spirit is separated from the body. At death, the spirit leaves the body. The body goes to sleep and no longer has any functionality, but the spirit of the saved man goes to be with the Lord if the person has trusted Jesus Christ. One of the thieves on the cross with Jesus, one on each side, one of them mocked, and the other one looked at him and, and he cried out for mercy. And Jesus said to him, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, was that body of that, 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 that thief going to be with Jesus that day? No, the body was going into a tomb somewhere, but his spirit at the moment of his death, would leave the body and go to be with Jesus. And, 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 and he went immediately from alive with Jesus in this life to alive with Jesus in the next. Even our text back in 1 Thessalonians, if you turn back there, chapter 4, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. See, God will bring them with him because they are with him. If they were not with him, then God could not bring them with him. These spirits are not resting in the ground, they're with him. If you've lost a loved one who's a believer in Christ, you can take comfort to know that this morning, even now, he is with the Lord. There are a lot of similarities between sleep, like the nap that you'll take this afternoon, and death. Sleeping is temporary. Death is not permanent, brother Christian. When a, when a person sleeps, his body is lifeless. Unless you're one of my children. Then when they sleep, their bodies are very much not lifeless. But when we, when we, when we die, our, our bodies are, are, are lifeless. When a, when a person sleeps, most people that I know, most human beings that I know, sleep lying down. Although... I always had great envy for people in school who could sleep sitting up. A talent I never had. When, we're, when we die, we're laid down into a grave. A lot of similarities. When someone goes to sleep at night, there is an expectation of a resurrection the next morning. Maybe, maybe early in the morning, maybe much later, but there's an expectation of a resurrection. And when the Christian dies, there is an expectation of a resurrection. While the spirit of a deceased Christian goes immediately to be with Christ, his body is laid to rest in a, in a graveyard, just sleeping there. Just, it's temporary. It's interesting the fact that the Greek word for sleep here is koimeo. The early Christians would call their cemeteries koimeterion. It was just a resting place, a, a temporary place. It was, it was all temp, temporary. They understood that. We get our word cemetery from the same word. It's, just a, it's a temporary holding place for our bodies until God comes to get them. We don't mourn for somebody who spends the evening as, at the Holiday Inn because we have an expectation that they're going to rise and, and, and come see us again. And so we ought not to mourn in the same way that the lost do when someone is laid to rest in a cemetery because we have an expectation that they are with Christ. 
We'll talk more about that resurrection next week in our 10 o'clock Bible study because we have some details given to us that are very interesting in the following verses about that rapture, that calling away that we often call it. But for these people in Thessalonica, it was their ignorance about this important truth that was leading to their sorrow. And so now I want to look at the cure for sorrow, for their sorrow especially, and for ours perhaps. The cure for their sorrow was not for people to stop dying. That would be impossible. We don't have a lot of control over many of our circumstances. We don't have a lot of control over, over death and sickness. We don't have a lot of control over that, but it's out of our control. But, but our response to these things is in our control. It, and if you're going through a tragic time, I can try to speak words of comfort to you, but my words will only go so far because I'm just a human with finite understanding. But Paul understands that these people, their their belief about God, their knowledge about God, could be used to comfort them in their time of sorrow, to strengthen them and to grow them. In fact, skip down to the conclusion of the chapter, verse 18. Wherefore, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Whose words were they? Were they Paul's words? Paul may have been the human instrument. It may have, he may have taken his pen out of his front pocket to write down some of these words, but they weren't Paul's words at all. In fact, he said as much in verse 15, For, we, for this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord. See, the word of God brings comfort. The word of God comforts us. We can be encouraged by his word. The cure for their sorrows was not to have all of the difficulties removed, but just to trust in the word of God. And the cure for our sorrows, quite often, is just to know what God says and to believe it. It was the words of Jesus that brought comfort to his disciples in in, in the latter chapters of the book of John. They They were anxious. They were anxious. People wanted them dead. People wanted Jesus dead. Jesus is telling them that he's going to leave them. They're about to lose their best friend, the one that they've been following for all these years, the one they had left everything for. They're about to lose him, and they were anxious, filled with anxiety. And Jesus, in, in John chapter 14, said, Let not your heart be troubled. And then he said this, You believe in God, believe also in me. It was their belief in Christ, their belief in God, what they knew about him to be true, that was to bring them comfort. And he goes on to give them some details. He says, in my father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. It was this truth, the words of Jesus, the words of Jesus speaking comfort to them. And when they believed them, their anxieties could be calmed. A couple of chapters down in chapter number 16, Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. Now they needed some peace, because they didn't have any peace right now. And he says to them, In this world you shall have tribulation, more bad news, but be of good cheer. So now, again, Jesus earlier he said, Let not your heart be troubled. Now he says, Be of good cheer. Well, how, how are they going to cheer up? And he says this, I have overcome the world. This information, this words of Jesus that he has already overcome the world was a source of comfort for them if they would receive it and if they would believe it. 
I've overcome the world. He's already done it. He's already proven himself capable against the fiercest foe. Now back to our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. The if there is not if Jesus rose, died and rose, but rather it's if we believe that Jesus died and rose. See, our belief in the truth does not affect the truth. It does not affect whether or not something is true. Jesus was born of a virgin, whether you believe it or not. Jesus lived on this earth. God became flesh, lived on this earth, a perfect life without ever sinning, whether you and I believe it or not. Jesus was hated, and he was taken to a faulty trial, hung upon a cross. The sins of the entire world, every single one of your sins and mine, were placed upon him willingly. And he he bore the sins of all the world on the cross, whether we believe it or not. Three days later, he arose from the dead, whether you believe it or not. And now... He sitteth at the right hand of the Father to ever maketh intercession for us. Whether we believe it or not, our, our belief in something does not determine whether or not it is true, but our belief in the truth does affect the hope that we have. It's why people who reject that truth have no hope. They, what, they, what could give them hope, they reject. They, they see the truth, they reject the truth. The, the truth is what will give them comfort and, and peace and, and help, but instead they reject the truth and they have no hope. That's why Paul said in verse 13, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. He's not condemning these people for sorrowing, for being sad, but he's saying, I don't want you to sorrow in the same way that they sorrow, because they have no hope and you have hope. They've rejected Christ, but you've trusted Christ. Paul has words of comfort. His words of comfort is this, just as Jesus died, so will you die, but just as Jesus raised, so will you raise. Their hope was grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if they would believe it. The Thessalonians were not the only church to struggle with this belief in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is a good chapter to read sometime, but I'll just read a couple of verses, beginning in verse 12. Now if Christ be preached. Paul, again writing, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, which they, the church believed, the people in, in, in Corinth believed that Christ rose from the dead. That was a, they wouldn't have been there in the church if they didn't believe that Christ rose from the dead. So he says, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith also is vain. He was on to say, for if the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. If you don't believe that Christians will rise, then you don't believe that Christ rose. It's as simple as that. The cure for their sorrow was increasing in their understanding of God's word and believing it. See, biblical ignorance breeds sorrow. And sorrow produces hopelessness. But it's more than just knowing something up here. Remember in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus had just died, 
He, 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 had, he had died, he had risen, and he was gone. And, and a lot of people didn't, didn't fully grasp what had happened. They didn't know where he was. All they knew was that the body was gone. Some said that the disciples came and stole the body away. Some of the disciples were afraid. Many of the believers, the disciples were scared. They didn't know what to think. And, and, and there were these two guys who were walking along the way on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus steps in incognito and begins to talk with them. They don't know who he is, but he knows who they are. And Jesus looked at him and he said, Why are you so sad? Why are you so sad? They were mourning openly about the fact that Jesus was gone. In fact, they said this, We trusted that it had been him, which it had been uh, he, which should have redeemed Israel. He was supposed to be the one. They don't know that they're talking to the one, but they're talking to someone, and he says, Why are you sad? And they say, Jesus, haven't you heard? Jesus has died, and, and he was the one that was supposed to redeem Israel. We had everything counting on him. He was the one, and now he's gone. Jesus offers these words of encouragement. Oh, fools, (laughs) and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? It doesn't seem very compassionate from Jesus, does it? They're discouraged. They're down in the dumps. dumps. They're sorrowing. They're mourning. And Jesus says, hey, you fools. Why can't you just believe what the prophets have said. Why can't you just believe? If you would just believe, then you would know that Jesus had to come and die and rise again to be with the Father. Had they had a right understanding of biblical truth and believed what God had said, they would have been comforted. But instead, they decided to reject what the prophets had said, and they were sorrowing. Do you see the connection? Often our greatest problems, one of our greatest problems is our... Lack of faith. It's a faith problem. Our greatest sorrows stem from a a lack of understanding and and a failure to believe what God has said. I'm so thankful for the hope that we have that extends even far beyond this life. I like what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, if if, if in this life only, if we have hope in Christ only in this life, then we're of all men most miserable. But our, our hope goes far into the future. As I read this text again and again in preparation for preaching, I was, I was comforted. I was greatly comforted by it. For my own life, for the people that I know and love. But there's something that's not addressed that I couldn't get out of my, my mind. And, and that's that this letter is, is written to Christians, about Christians who have passed away. But, but what about those who have died without Christ? If we find comfort in Christ for those who have died with Christ? Where do we find comfort for the loved ones who have died without Christ? And probably all of us can relate. Nowhere in the Bible are we given more insight to the inner turmoil and anxiety that goes on within us than in the book of Psalms. If you read Psalms, you just see that David, David was a man who mourned. David was a man who sorrowed. He found himself in despair so often, and his problems may have been varied, but his source of comfort was always the same. He always came back to the same source of comfort. Like in Psalm 42, when he, it's like he's looking in the mirror, and he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted? Why art thou disquieted within me? 
And then he gives himself this advice that he gave himself over and over and over again. Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. In Psalm 146, he said this, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The problems did not go away. The despair did not disappear. The sorrow, the things that he was sorrowing over still existed. But he looked at himself in the mirror sometimes and he said, Why are you down? Hope in God. God is good. God can be trusted. And there are many things that we don't understand. But God is good. And he comforts us in our tribulations just as Jesus comforted his disciples in that time of tribulation for them. We can't change the past, but we can trust in God. We can put our faith in the knowledge and belief that he is good and he is overall. And as we receive comfort from him, then we can comfort others as well. We read earlier the last verse of the chapter, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I love in 2 Corinthians 1.4, this is a great verse to commit to memory. Paul said, who comforteth us in all our tribulation? Of course, he's talking about the Lord. Who comforteth us in all of our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves have been comforted of God. See, if we don't receive God's comfort, then we can't have any comfort to give away. But as the Lord comforts us, as we allow him to comfort us, then we can take that comfort that we've been given and we can share it with the people around us who need that comfort. That's why he comforts us. Not only do we comfort those who have experienced loss, but to me this text underscores the importance of preaching the gospel so that they too can have the same hope that we have. We live in a world that needs hope. We're surrounded every day by people who need hope, who are hopeless. And they'll tell you they're hopeless. People are not hiding. People are not in the closet anymore with their depression. They're very open about it with their anxiety, with their struggles, with their suicidal tendencies. All these things, it's it's bombarding us. If you watch the news, you see it every single day. If you're on social media, you can't, it's just in your face. People are hopeless. They know they're hopeless. They recognize they're hopeless. They'll admit that they don't have anything to live for. But we have a cure for hopelessness. We have the cure. It's not a pill. It's not a 12-step program. It's not a book or a video or a seminar. Our hope is Jesus. I like the song. I, I put that song in the choir at the last minute this morning because our hope is Jesus. He's our only hope. Christ and Christ alone. He left heaven. He came to earth not as a tourist. He created everything. He had already seen it. He made it. He didn't come to view the scenery. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he willingly sacrificed his life on a cross to pay a debt, a sin debt that you and I could never afford to pay on our own. Not in a million years could we afford to pay the sin debt that we had racked up. He came for that very reason, to sacrifice his life, to be that perfect sacrificial lamb to pay for the sins of the world. And now, now he offers that free gift of salvation to anyone who will repent of their sin and just believe what God has said. Just believe, repent of sin, and believe what God has said. 
And you may have entered into this building this morning hopeless. Hopeless. What, I don't know what's going to happen after today. Hopeless. I don't know what happens after this life. Hopeless. But you can leave with hope. There is hope for everyone. It's not limited to a few. God didn't handpick just a few that he was going to give hope to. The hope is for all of the world, for all who will accept him. And that includes you today.